0: Listen to the Word of God. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Thus the reading of God's holy word. Now if uh, you're not a believer in Christ... Because every time I preach, I don't care how small the church is or how big it is, there are people sitting here who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They may have attended church for 20, 30, 40, or 50 years. It makes no difference. If you're not a believer in Christ, one united to Christ in both his death and his resurrection, one who has entrusted himself or herself to to the sufficiency of what Christ has done for them, both in this his life, that is the things that he did in this life, as well as his death. If you're one of those who has repented not only of his or her sins, but for your good works, as if they could earn you some favor from God, one who knows that salvation is a gift received and not a reward achieved, you are one of those who's laid their deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, clinging to him, to him alone, gloriously complete. If those words don't describe your present condition, you are reminded this day of the great subtraction that characterizes every life, only with a different outcome for those who have embraced the truth and what awaits them versus those who have not. So this morning I want to talk about that great subtraction. First of all, the nature of the great subtraction is reality. Secondly, the temptations of the great subtraction. Thirdly, what we need to successfully face the great subtraction. And fourthly, the consequences of how we face the great subtraction. So first, it's reality, it's character, the nature of the great subtraction. Now, uh, Peter has sets it up this way. He says, "...since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin." So, as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. In other words, here we have it summed up for us in a nutshell. He says in verse 2, the rest of the time. In verse 3, the time that is past. In other words, here, in brief, Peter is confronting us with what G.K. Chesterton meant when he said that the mystery of life is the plainest part of it. The mystery of life is the plainest part of it. What is the plainest part of it? Well, simply put, that there is only what is left of our lives and every day is a work of subtraction from the total we are given. There is only what is left of our lives and every day is a work of subtraction from the total we are given. Now we can choose to think about this and its reality and its significance or we can live in a form of denial of it. The reminders are everywhere. Look out the window. The great philosopher Baudelaire referred to the clock as that sinister God. Albert Camus, the French philosopher, referred to the unalterable subtraction as what he called the cruel arithmetic of time. So however we choose to describe it, human experience itself is a constant reminder of the moment-by-moment subtraction of time. Now some of us awaken to that as Dante did in the Divine Comedy who says, Midway midway on my life's journey I found myself in a dark wood and I awakened. Whether it's the Old Testament book of Exodus, whether it's Homer's Odyssey, whether it's Virgil's Aeneid, whether it's Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, whether uh, whether it's Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, whether it's Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, or Herman Hesse Siddhartha, or Jack Kerouac's on the road. It makes no difference. Everyone's life is at one point or another between the beginning and the end. And the journey of life is, after all, a great subtraction. And that's made more obvious, isn't it, by the older we get. No one under 30 finds themselves saying, In the good old days... When I was in school, when I was growing up, in my day, no one under 30 says things like that because these express the reality of the great subtraction. Secondly, what choices are we given in light of this great subtraction? Well, Peter notes again in verse 2, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. In other words, there are two ways of facing the reality of the great subtraction. And both of them lead you nowhere. There is a third, which actually does take us where we need to go. So let's start with the first two wrong choices people offer in face of the great subtraction. Generally speaking, we do one or the other of these, or we try to make a possible combination of the two. What are they? Well, we either find distractions or we engage in making bargains. Find distractions or find ways of making bargains. Bargains. Let's start with distractions, <clears throat> or what Pascal referred to as diversions. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress referred to it as Vanity Fair. Or Soren Kierkegaard once said as tranquilizing ourselves with the trivial. In other words, spending ourselves on the pursuits of the flesh. The poet A.E. Houseman expressed it this way in his poem, A Shropshire Lad. Think no more, lad, laugh, be jolly. Why should men make haste to die? Empty heads and tongues a-talking make the rough road easy walking. And the feather paid of folly bears the falling sky. Oh, tis jesting, dancing, drinking, spins the heavy world around. If young hearts were not so clever, oh, they would be young forever. Think no more. Tis only thinking lays lads underground. In other words, make it up for yourself, make up your own reality, and enjoy it to the greatest extent possible. And the last thing you ever want to do is think. The last thing you want to do is think. Because to think lays lads underground. Or, in the words of our text, our choice is to do what the Gentiles do. And that just simply refers to those who are outside of Christ. Peter uses the expression human passions to sum up the way of unbelief. What the Gentiles want to do, the distractions we most often choose. And he illustrates this with things like living in sensuality. means living without regard for any moral restraint. Ephesians 4, Paul says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Passions are what? They're simply those inordinate desires, over-desires, things that ultimately control us. And what kind of things might those be? Well, the things that fulfill our idea of what a good life would be or look like. It could be success, it could be achievement, it could be wealth, it could be physical attractiveness, it could be honor, it could be sex, it could be respect. Things taken to the extreme until they become what? They become those things without which we cannot be happy and be satisfied. Listen, the difference between a desire and a need, we need to get this straight in our lives or else we're going to be very unhappy people. The difference between a desire and a need is what? That a desire that isn't satisfied doesn't destroy me. It doesn't rob me of my happiness. There are good desires and there are bad desires. It's good to desire a happy, a happy and healthy marriage. It's a perfectly expected desire. It's good to desire a successful career in whatever business you're involved with. It's good to desire financial stability in your life. But when that desire becomes a need without which you cannot be happy and you cannot be stable in your relationships with other people and or God, If you do not find your ultimate satisfaction in Christ in the midst of either success or failure, then those things which are ordinarily good have become idols for you, passions for you, without which you cannot be happy. Listen, I don't need a successful career. You don't need a successful career. You need to know God. You need to love Him and to know His love for you. You see, sometimes not having a successful career is the way God reveals his love for you in ways deeper than you could ever hope or imagine compared to what you might have known of his love and care for you in the midst of success, one after the other. Drunkenness, he's referring to here, is simply a term that characterizes a life set on physical, following physical desires a life which sets its primary object the achievement of such physical desires, which he gives us an illustration of what those might include, orgies, uh, really parties, revels, excessive reveling, immorality general, carousing, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Now, all idolatry is against the law of God. We know that. So what does he mean by lawless idolatry? Well, he means by that, That these are forms of idolatry that are even forbidden by the civil authority, let alone God. So that the state, which is meant to inhibit the expression of these things, is being ignored. So that leads to ultimate anarchy and complete chaos. Verse 4, he refers to what he calls a flood of debauchery. That means an unrestrained indulgence in seeking after pleasure. Unrestrained indulgence in seeking after pleasure. Paul talks about the same thing in Ephesians 5 verse 18 when he says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That's the same word used in Luke 15 to describe the younger brother. That life he spent away from the father and the family was a life of debauchery. In other words, pursuing every desire of the flesh. Now, modern society, the society we live in today, is one grand diversion. We live not only in the United States of America, we live in the Republic of Entertainment. Shops, shows, sports, games, tourism, recreation, cosmetics, plastic surgery, virtual reality, the endless glorification of beauty and the flesh, the endless glorification of youth. You see, our culture is a vast conspiracy to make us forget the great subtraction. Psychologist Ernest Becker called us, that's you and me, reality escape artists. Reality escape artists. He wrote, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. So diversion or distraction is one response to the great subtraction. The other is bargaining. Bargaining. Now remember, the goal is to do what? Is to live in denial of the great subtraction, which ends in death. It was T.S. Eliot who observed, Humankind cannot bear very much reality. So, we make a bargain. We make a bargain with death. And that's usually a bargain made with God or the devil. And you see this frequently portrayed in the great literary traditions of the Western canon. How do we buy more time? I like a lot of Chris Christopherson's songs. <laughs> Not all of them. But I like a lot of them. I love the one in the, which has the words of Christopherson, we trade all our tomorrows for a single yesterday. We trade all our tomorrows for a single yesterday. That's most famously illustrated in the novels referring to Faust, Mephistopheles, pick the name used to describe the character. In other words, We'll buy more yesterdays. We'll get our lost time back. We make a deal to get those lost yesterdays back and hence add to time and not have to deal with the subtraction of time. In other words, if I do this, God will reward me with that. Unfortunately, the deals we often make, or most often make, are not with God, but with the devil himself. Because only the devil sells these kinds of lies in the first place. You see, it's only the devil who questions the veracity of God himself. You recall when he said, In the day you eat, you shall surely die? Question mark? Really? Come on. You'll simply become like Him. You will become God's. You see, the false deal always ends the same way. In Christopher Marlowe's Mephistopheles, the devil reminds his victim, fools that must laugh on earth will weep in hell. So we wave time aside or we think we do, and more fully enjoy the pleasurable moment, the event, or so we think. We can always attend to reality later, can't we? Of course. You see, it's amazing, isn't it? There's nothing we won't promise for tomorrow. If only today we gain a little more time, a little more success, a little more pleasure. We want to avoid reality and slow time down and deny death its due. Someone once said, self-deception is just another form of postponed suicide. See, in the end, all the bargaining proves is what? It proves to be simply a waste of time. Because the last enemy always arrives, death. Leo Tolstoy once wrote a famous parable that expressed it this way How much land does a man need? Answer, six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. Reality scape artists, bargainers. Notice what Peter's saying here in verse 3 The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You see, Peter's not speaking in the abstract here, is he? He's saying to those particular people, he's saying it to us this morning, who have lived this way, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. You recall back in chapter 1, Peter commanded them in verse 14, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. That time, the time is past. The time that has been subtracted, is has been lost, it's gone. In other words, stop fantasizing about it. Be done with it. Malcolm Muggeridge, who titled his autobiography at the age of 75, Chronicles on Wasted Time. The time before he knew Christ, met Christ. When Christ took over his life, he said, it was simply wasted time. Wasted on what? Well, what Peter has just described. Attempting to escape reality or make a bargain with the devil. I'm reminded that this text in First Peter is talking to me. It's talking to you. To all of us who now glory in Christ and not in man. Not in what men can make. And produce. You see, he's describing me, you. He's possibly describing the person sitting next to you. Because it is we who were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. But praise be to God, as Paul says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, what do we need to successfully face the great subtraction? Well, we said that there were two false answers, distracting yourself or making bargains. The only true answer comes from somewhere else. And so Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, Peter's telling us to do what? He's telling us to arm ourselves, equip ourselves, if you will, by being reminded daily that Christ's suffering on the cross, His life and death and resurrection, has ended the rule of sin in our lives. He's ushered in a new resurrection in its place. Jesus is the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, when Christ died in my place, I died to sin there with him. And when he rose, I rose there with him. He has given me new birth, new life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, His death and my being united to Him by faith and be united to to Him in His death by faith and united to Him in His resurrection by faith separates me from the life before and creates something new. Arm myself, arm yourself with this attitude, Peter's telling us. And that's what Paul tells us in Romans 6. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sins once for all. but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may not obey its evil desires. See, P- Peter is telling us to arm ourselves with that great truth. Remind yourself of that great truth. Make it a part of your new identity embrace it live out of the power of it arm yourself with this way of thinking peter's telling us why so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of god so that we might live the rest of the time the time that is left to me knowing that what is past is now gone The great subtraction is gone. Live for what? For the will of God. And what will the will of God look like? Well, he says, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I love the way the hymn puts it, Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and string to serve the king of kings. See, God wants us to do something beautiful in you, in me, to you, to me, through us, to others. That's what he wants to do. And my tendency is to do what? Return to the old habits. The old passions which distort God's love for me and his desire to make something beautiful in me and through me. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, We poison the wine as he decants it into us. Murder a melody he would play with us as the instrument. We caricature the self-portrait he would paint. Hence, all sin, whatever else it is, is sacrilege. Well, lastly, the consequences of how we face the great subtraction. What Peter is calling us to is to see and to will the consequences, and those consequences will not always be pleasant for us. It starts with what? Well, I experienced this in Africa frequently. They called me padre. (laughs) That was not an endearing term. So Padre, so we have to watch what we say around Padre, right? Because he's a party pooper. We know that. Because he's Padre, right? You're wet blankets. You're no fun anymore. Eventually, as Malcolm Muggeridge once said, to follow Christ will usually make you appear to be a life hater. life hater. You're no fun anymore. And that will eventually turn to mockery and ridicule. Oh, maybe not to your face but behind your back. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They can't explain you so they have to mock and ridicule you. Notice the progression in that verse. Surprised. They're surprised. They're shocked that you don't want to go out and get drunk anymore. You don't want to chase women anymore. You don't want to do all those things you once did. They're shocked by it. And so what is their response? They malign you. Oh, he became a Christian. Did you hear about that? Oh, he's no fun anymore. We have a beautiful illustration of this. In recent history, Vice President Mike Pence and his wife Karen, an article in the Washington Post, which was perfectly fine, of their marriage, their family, et cetera, et cetera. However, when it was discovered that when Mike and Karen went to Congress Congress as freshman congressmen, they had a rule about how they would live their lives so that their marriage might not be a casualty in Washington. And so they decided that he would never have dinner alone with another woman, only with his wife, or with his wife present. That he would never attend parties where alcohol was served without his wife there with him. As he put it, the most beautiful brunette in the room on my side. Wow. Well, among other things, he was excoriated for these comments <coughs> to say made fun of would be to minimize it. He was mocked and he was ridiculed. Here's, a, here's an illustration of some of the tweets that were produced after this revelation of such odd behavior. Mike Pence never eats solid food that his wife hasn't chewed first. To respect his wife, Mike Pence refuses to use a toilet after a lady has used it. He also does not eat at restaurants with lady mascots. Sincere question, how is this different from extreme repressive interpretations of Islam? Mocked by people like Mike Pence. Or who knew Mike Pence had uncontrollable sexual compulsions so serious he can't be alone with a woman who's not his wife? You see, there are consequences for those who live the reality of the great subtraction. There are consequences for those who do not live within the truth of the great subtraction. Who have no hope, no forgiveness, that is only available to them by faith in Christ. But you see, reality cannot be escaped. All bargains in the end prove to be illusions. Tolstoy once said that two things made him profoundly aware of the great subtraction. The sight of a guillotine and the death of a close friend. Well, the scriptures make it clear that God is the great heart knower. And one day a great reckoning will occur But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And who's the He here? It isn't God the Father. It's Jesus Christ. He, He will be ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, Jesus came first as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God. He came first as a sacrifice. He comes second. As the judge of the world. And there are no secrets that can be kept from him. You see, God knows the heart. You have searched me and known me, you know, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar off. You search out my path and my lying down, are acquainted and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. He also knows what happens to us when we refuse to acknowledge who we really are and who He really is. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, we're not talking here merely about regret for sin, feeling bad you got caught. The repentance he's talking about here isn't something that only occurs because you're embarrassed by having been caught doing something bad. If that's all it is, then your sin will remain your secret and it will destroy you. You see, it was my rebellion that put Jesus Christ on that tree that day. It was my sin that did that. And an awareness of my sin putting him to death on the cross should cause my heart to tremble. Martin Luther once said that if our hearts do not tremble, then we of all people have reason to tremble. You see, the cost to reverse the great subtraction was Calvary itself, and to Calvary we must go. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Cling to him, to him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that teaches us that now we are no longer those who live the illusion that we somehow can escape the reality of the great subtraction. That it's appointed to each and every one of us the days of our lives, the hours, the minutes of our lives. These are beyond our control. But the truth is that each day is a subtraction from the total. So how do we respond to that? How do we greet that news? Do we seek to find ways of distracting ourselves? Or do we think somehow we can make a bargain and we just do some good things that somehow we'll get more time? Or do we look to the cross of Calvary and see that there, death and sin have been defeated? And that with the resurrection of our Savior, we are now gloriously complete in Him. And that our future is His future. And that's a future where there will be no sorrow, no pain, no grief, no death. Because the ultimate sting of death will have been removed forever. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he's done and what he continues to do. And we give thanks to him and we pray in his name.